out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome to The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. I'm with you for the next, probably, I don't know, 60 minutes. It's a bit loose and free, but as you know, we always love our indie pop, but we also love a special guest. And uh, this week it's going to be the turn of a legend, Wild Willie Barrett, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. And as you know, Willie is an English experimental musician and multi-instrumentalist, best known for his collaborations with John Otway. And um, after several minutes of chat and getting to know each other, we got down to that very exciting question that was the early years and uh, early musical influences. And this was Mr. Wild Willie Barrett's response. It's over to you, Mr. Barrett. Take it away. Well, I was playing in a school band when I was um, 14, you know, 13, 14, doing wedding gigs, you know, with the... um, pop tunes of the day, I suppose. And then I wanted to do something on my, you know, sort of, of my own original material. And uh, when I was about 16, I left school when I was 15 and went onto the roadworks, you know, as my first job. And I had to take my guitar in and all that sort of thing, have a tune, you know. People didn't quite understand me. <laughs> Understandable. Yes. And, um, and when I was at school... When I was about 12, I used to see this, uh, I suppose they were beatnik people in those days. Black yes. Macintoshes, dark sounded, this guy hitching up the road towards London, like this when I lived in Aylesbury. And, um, and he had a bald head carrying what looked like a box. Well, it was a box. And uh, it turned out to be a guy called Lowell Coxhill, a sax player, oh. who lived in Aylesbury. And, and I I was quickly when I was 15, I used to go and play at a local jazz club in the break for a 10 bob note. And um, I got to know him, and we used to do a few free form jazz things around jazz clubs in the country at that time. Yes. You know, and you know, on and off, I was doing that for a couple of years, you know, just used to sort of hook up with him and go off and do these things, which was quite educational. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and that that was one thing. I used to live and listen to a lot of, um, you know, Django, Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli when I was a kid because my man was always playing it. Yes. And was it, and did me, did music come quite easily and quite quickly? To, to, you know, did you pick up the musical instruments quite easily? Yeah, I can't remember not playing. You know, I used to play ukulele when I was three and my dad used to play in a Hawaiian band and he used to rehearse at home. Right. I used to sit in on that. My brother picked up guitar at the same time when he was a bit older than me. So so we were surrounded by this um, yes. music. Although he didn't do it professionally, my dad, you know, he was uh, always playing. He just liked playing. Yes, which is quite handy to have that environment to grow up in. And did you, I mean, you were mentioned, the, you know, the beatniks, and obviously there was the Jack Kerouac period and... Ginsburg and people like that, which were quite different to the hippie movement that developed, because I know Kerouac hated the hippies, really, and didn't enjoy the Tom Wolfe, not Tom Wolfe, the other guy who did um, Electric, no, that was the, that was Tom Wolfe, I'm thinking the guy who did One Who Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, actually. 
um, oh, Tim. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, that guy who yeah, I yeah. remember about two minutes later. But yeah, so when he was kind of introduced to the sort of those freaks going from San Francisco across uh, America in a bus with the word trip at the front, he really didn't enjoy it and he really hated it. So <laughs> he, he didn't he didn't enjoy all that kind of wonderful world that was um Ken Kesey, that's the man, Ken Kesey. Um, yeah, yeah, so he didn't really enjoy that kind of community. Did you at all sort of embrace that hippie counterculture at all? Because it sounds like you were not, much more, you were much more jazz. Not, not, not really. I've, I mean, I, I just didn't. I don't think I. I embraced. Um, I don't know lifestyle. I just wanted to do something different, and and I didn't really pick up on the, on the hippie thing. And that, although it was all around me, you know, was, I, I just didn't, you know, I rubbed a little bit against it. And and also in Aylesbury, where I was growing up, it, it was, uh, we, we used to get the skinheads from London come down every weekend because it was the end of the line. And uh, and those uh, pitch battles with the um, local squaddies at the RAF camp. And, and it was always them and the, and the hippies, you know, hippie skinheads and you know i didn't want to be part of any clan that was going to clash like that no but i actually organized a, a hippies versus skinheads football match um in Aylesbury, which is quite fun for a pound a goal and there was quite a lot of money in that in those days yes we scored the first goal and then lost 11-1 i think it was oh, it's a good pr it's a good pr exercise and about so no, I don't really like I don't like plans, you know, the, the trouble. Don't matter what it is. Yes, and then as as, as you know, because it's kind of interesting that the sixties when it came to an end. Obviously, decades don't sort of always start and end quite neatly. I remember there was a poem by Philip Larkin who mentioned the sixties starting in sixty three with the first Beatles album and stuff like that. Yeah, I can't quite remember the rest of it actually. But you know, you know, you know, normally it it drifts into the next decade. And the seventies was very different. Plus, you know, you'd had the death of Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, you'd had you know, the Glass um Woodstock had been a bit of a I mean it filmed brilliantly, but it, anybody who was there would have said it was a disaster. And then you had Altamont and things you know, and a lot of the people I've interviewed, like Barry Miles, who did the Indica books and stuff like that, said, you know, by the end of the 60s, they'd all got really tired and probably things had got a bit messy as well. And they retired off in a way, you know, semi-retired. And then you, you had another scene that started, which was kind of much more about glam. And then you had prog rock. So how did you navigate during the 70s period? Because obviously you were getting, you're almost in your 20s then. Well, in the early 70s, um I was playing some acoustic music um, that, that, that I'd written. I did my first my first um, solo contract with Transatlantic Records in '73. I think it was um, with a compilation album with the likes of um, John Remborn and all, all the rest of the people that were about at that time. Um, but the other thing, I, I, I used to play, I, I used to be able to go to our local gig in Aylesbury in the early day, in the, in the, through the sort of early 60s when I was at school. I used to sneak in, and I used to see bands like The Animals, Cliff Richards, The Shadows, um, and uh, Johnny Good and the Pirates. I, I always remember them because I saw he threw it into, he didn't stick in the stage, it bounced into the front row. Remember that? And, um, and, and then I, and so that that was those gigs, and then following on from that, we had Friars Aylesbury opened up. I actually played at the second one of those, supporting the Pretty Things, I think it was. And and then we had the likes of Bowie, 
I did a really strange gig with um, the MC5. I don't know if you remember them. Oh, yes. The loudest loudest band I've ever witnessed. Absolutely horrendous. (laughs) Well, that was kind of very early punk. And bizarrely, I did an interview with Wayne Kramer quite recently. So he's still alive and kicking, even though he did have a bit. He did have a (laughs) trick. (laughs) <laughs> but he did have a tricky 70s period. But yes, yeah, so you were definitely, so you were there in that world that was, because Bowie had gone from being a very sort of slightly fave folk singer from the 60s into this kind of, um, he he learned how to write a three minute rock pop song, didn't he, quite quickly. So were you a kind of, a, not associated, but were you sort of gravit- slightly orbiting those kind of glam period, you know, glam scenes? Yeah, I was, I, I was just mulling around, you know, in, in the... Uh in the mire, really, as to what was going on. Because, because I used to go, you know, in Aylesbury, it was a good source of, of new music. Um, you know, I was surrounded by lots of different sorts of music, so I didn't particularly pick up on any particular one. And and then a friend of mine started promoting, you know, um, the early punk bands as well. So, you know, I, was, I suddenly got all that thrust at me, yes. which was quite educational, you know. You know, so I've had a very varied exposure to different sorts of music. I've never really latched onto any one style. And, um, yes. And of course, you know, there's always Mr. Octway that, you know, we knew each other when we were kids. I was running a club in, in 69, I think it was, and he, he arrived to a floor spot and it was absolutely horrendous, but I loved it. <laughs> and, you know, of course, you know, the rest, as they say, is a. Site history. Yes. Verging on sort of. <laughs> something yes did you also go to some of the legendary gigs that were you know at um ellsbury you know because there was i think there was the one that david bowie and the famous picture of bowie and ronson you know were yeah of... yeah he paid that to three times because we got the famous statue there now haven't we got the in famous ellsbury. what there statue yes this is true There's a sculpt i'm not, not quite sure about it but you know achievement on somebody's behalf yes i know it's it's kind of tricky so when you were you know because a lot of artists during the 70s get quite sort of lost at the time especially when punk comes along because obviously it sort of hits a lot of people who were thinking you know they'd been developing their craft and then this kind of movement that was you know so about youth and also you know a two and a half minute song how did you navigate the punk world um well, I'm, I, I thought it was great, really. You know, like I say, I've never really latched on to any particular sort of music. I've been quite interested in the business side of it and seeing it as uh, as a punter also, you know, rather than just as an artist. Because I've always had in my mind what I want to do creatively. Um, and and I've sort of gone, gone along with that and just, you know, kept an eye on other things that are going along. Yes. Um, and there's always been two or three sides for every story, you know, you know, like you had all the disco stuff going on. And, you know, when Northern Soul was big, you know, you had the alternatives to that. And I was always keeping an ear on everything that was going on rather than taking to one side, knocking people. You know, I, I can't stand people who knock artists musically or any other way because it's really hard to be successful in the, in the industry. Yes. Doesn't matter who you who you are and how you how you can do it as long as you don't chop people up, which you know has been known, I suppose. <laughs> but it's um, it, you know it's really hard, and if anybody gets there, you know, 
good luck to them. I know it's not the career; it's not an easy career. So when you brought you got your sort of the album out with John in eighty six. This was this was um, recorded at um, Pete Pete Townsend's studio, wasn't it? Well, the first one, yeah, we did in seventy seven. We did all that. Yes, quite seventy six. And what was your? Yeah, sort of, uh, yeah. I just wonder what your memory of that that session and and that period was like. Um, well, well, obviously, I found it quite exciting. Although I, I don't really hold anybody, I haven't got any heroes as such. You know, I just think we're all we're all human beings, and we all excel at something. It might not necessarily be music, or you know, just every everybody can do something. Yes. And and so Pete Townsend was was just somebody who was reasonably successful at that time, and and he's a creative guy as well, which I quite. I found I found his creativity more interesting than than you know what he'd achieved with the Who. Well, quite. Yes, he's a complex character, a complex man. Yeah, yeah, and he's still doing it. You know, which is great. Well, absolutely. You know, so navigate the waters. You know, with you know, because yeah. obviously, probably every art. Can you remember the, how really free came together? Because that's the first science song on side two. So obviously. Probably not one that you had much. I don't know. You didn't put it on first side on side one, did you? Put it put it that way. No, there was <clears throat> as a choice of uh, the first one we did was actually Misty Mountain, which the one Townsend got interested in, and uh, a song called Murder Man, which which he produced as a single with with Louise on a horse on the B side. You know, which um, bit of a strange one. Yes. But um, anyway, but that after that. Um, you know, me and Otway just carried on, and the Polydor promotions man started working on us. He got us on telly a lot after he seen us at the Speakeasy in London, and so Polydor had to sign us. Basically, that's the story there. <laughs> it's quite funny, and um, and and away it went. And and we we had a few things. I I always saw really free as a single, but we had trouble recording it. We tried it three or four times. And then one day we were in um, Chalk Farm and uh, there's a chap in there, we were playing it. He says, now you turn this up, turn that up, turn this up, turn that down, turn it up, you know, and he was doing all this. And he wasn't a producer, you know, and suddenly it all fired up into life. And, uh, you know, me and I looked at each other and said, okay. So that's what we did when he got, we we just sort of um, approached it totally differently. Yes. And how, I mean, it suddenly worked. Yes, and suddenly you were having a top, top forty smash hit. Did that feel quite strange? I mean, to suddenly find yourself sort of catapulted into that kind of world. I don't know if we were suddenly catapulted because we'd been gigging extensively. Now we were doing three or four gigs a week and working a lot of the time. We used to drive all over the country, going, and we used to go to work in, in on the bins early in the morning, dropping off and then in the station. And, uh, and I used to do bits of demolition and work on farm and that kind of thing. Um, it was very, very hectic. So, so we were used to that busyness. And, and also we could see our audiences were building around the country. That that was the exciting bit when all that started happening. Yes. And then the, the, the actual TV and that just you sort of think, well, that, this is what happens, you know. Which is a nice Yeah, my mum was still saying, get your hair cut and get a proper job. <laughs> <Brilliant>. <laughs> yes. So did that mean when you, you sort of 
obviously had the kind of excitement and, and possibly pressure to sort of release an album very quickly, deep and meaningless. Did that um, was that quite a smooth process bringing an album? Well, the album actually came first because um, you know we we had the four tracks that we done with Townsend. And and we decided we couldn't get anybody to to release it. You know, you know, Polydor weren't interested in us at that time. We couldn't. So so John Oppen and myself, we decided we were going to put it out independently. You know, which I, th- I think we were one of the very first independent record labels. We got a load pressed, and and then we went on. We managed to get a TV spot, which, courtesy of the Polydor promotion guy, a guy called Tony Bramwell, and. Um, and as soon as we were on on our first television, we were mail ordering the albums. You know, it just all happened like that. And then because we were getting all these TVs, we weren't signed to Polydor, so they decided they ought to take the album over because the very first one was on the Extract album label. It was just our label, which was um, after Track Records lost interest in us, which was the Who's label. Um, and then Polydor took over that album. I've called it John Otway and Wild Willie Barrett yes. on the Polydor label. Did you manage seventy seven? Yeah, and did you manage to navigate the world that is kind of the ownership and publishing deals? Okay, or did that kind of slightly bamboozle you? No, no, I've always been aware of it, mainly because when you try and do things, there's always somebody. In those days, you used to get um, a letter, you know. Saying, do you know <laughs> you can't do this? <laughs> oh, sorry, mate, <laughs> done it, but you know, won't do it again. Yeah, no, you are made aware of all these things. Yes, because I mean, from a very, very early, early stage of being involved in the business. You know? Oh, so you managed to navigate oh. quite nicely during that period. Yes. Oh, oh yeah. That's very good. Oh, yeah. Well, that's brilliant, because most people don't, and they go, damn, if I could have done it again, I would have done it differently. Because then, you, you're you on this kind of, like like Bowie during the 70s, he released an album a year, which is quite amazing, relocated several times, produced other people's work, starred in films. You were, by then, you were bringing an album out a year as well with John, which must have felt like you were on a mission, really. Yeah, it was... It was... It was good. It was exciting. It felt as though things were moving forward, you know, all, all those usual things. And then um, I can't remember what happened, really, nothing. <laughs> yes. Well, no, but you did You did another album with with John and then you brought out Call of the Wild, which is your first solo album on Polydor. So were you just feeling, I mean, by then, were you just both having a, I don't know, what, what, was, what was the reason of, of um, doing a solo album in, in 79? It's quite a long story. It take, it take ages to, but, but it's all in um, Otway's first book. If you know, if you read that. John Otway's story. Uh, first book. It's all in there, oh. and it's mentioned at our live gigs a lot as well. Okay, then <laughs> yes. Is it possible? The ongoing sort of, uh, you know, conflict. There's not conflict. It's just an amusement for the both of us, really. Yes. Okay. So that's 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 bad. God, that's <laughs> such a mystery now. God, I can't believe you just said yeah. that and then leave it. But anyway. I'll have to try and track it down. Is it available on the Read the manual is what they say. Read the manual. Read the manual. But then you did another, you did two solo albums, Crazy Kong album. Yep. But then you did... Yeah, yeah, go on. And then I said, and then you did Way and Bar, which was back with John. That's right. Yes. Uh, that that was, 
I don't know. I don't know how to put it, really. I mean, we hadn't done anything for a while, and, and uh, both our, our musical careers were sort of, uh, you know, flagging a bit, although I wasn't too worried. And it was suggested that, you know, may not wait to do another one you know, by Polydor. Yes. And uh, I thought, OK, why not? And there it was. I had my own little studio on the go then at that time. So, so we didn't have the financial outlay that that was required. Mm. But you put together, which was quite an ambitious thing, the tent tour, which... What was your memories? Because, I mean, you played a lot of quite amazing places around, including Norwich, the Whites in Norwich. Well, yeah. Well, the, the thing about that tent tour was that it was a single called DK5080 that we had to support um, the album that was off of. And Polydor, it, 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 the, the, the scam was you, you bought a single to, as a ticket to get into the gig. And Polydor's sales force were going around the country filling up the chart return shops, which they were in those days, um, like a couple of weeks before we were in the town doing the gig. And that's the only place people could buy the ticket, you know, which was the, the single. So to keep our costs of the tour down, we were staying on campsites in tents. Nice. So, so we had we had one crew that went off to the gig with all the gear straight away when we arrived in the town, and me and Otway and and the rest of the band because we had a band with us. Well, we went and set the tent up in the tent campsite. Then we went to the gig, so all the, all the gear would be set up, and that's how we did it. It was, it was brilliant, and it worked. We charted it, you know, and we were just about to go on top of the pops, and BMU went on strike. And that buggered the whole bloody operation. Oh, I know. I know. <clears throat> so close. That is that is always the way, isn't it? Really. And then on that on that particular album, you did you have um, you had Lowell Cox Coxhill on saxophone. So was that quite a a nice moment having you know yeah. met him decades before? Because he did a fantastic solo on my Crazy Kong. I did some Crazy Kong demos. Just as a laugh, and, and, and that's when I was signed to Transatlantic, and I was going to do an acoustic guitar album with them, which is why it was my favourite, you know, instrument. And they heard this crazy cool track, and they decided to do a whole album. And I thought, well, it's not going to work. And at that, that point, I lost interest, so it was just a contractual obligation. But but the demo, we, I did three demos, and Law played on two of them. He did this fantastic sax solo lasted about 30 seconds yes um it, you know it wasn't clever fiddly widdly diddly it was just really really top drawer as they say on a bashed up old saxophone and it's on the demo it, uh, it's on my crazy cool demo album yeah i think interesting and and then he uh, yeah i got him on a couple of the old way barrett tracks later on yes which is nice because your Crazy Kong album is going to be in, um, regarded as the first white reggae album recorded before the police got regatta de blanc, <laughs> which was um, interesting. Yeah, so because I, I know in that period, especially the late 70s and then into the 80s, Roots Reggae, having been to quite a lot of those Sly and Robbie gigs and seen you know, people like Gregory Isaacs and Aswad and Berlin Spear and Misty and Roots, I mean, Roots Reggae was quite the thing. So you'd gone from a certain jazz background to, to reggae. Was that quite 
an easy transition for you? Well, I've always really, really loved reggae, and, and well, no, it's like when I was a kid, um, in you know, when, when I was sort of five, six, seven, eight, nine, where I lived in Halsby, there's a, there's a big um, a West Indian um, influx in the in the fifties, and of course they brought with them the music. And my, you know, my old man he used to do a lot of work for the West Indian community, you know, because he was a builder, decorator, and everything. And he used to come home with all these scar records. That's fantastic. You know, we both loved it. And then I got into it there. And then I, I sort of kept coming across, you know, reggae as it developed. And funnily enough, in 1977, when I, I was recording in Chalk Farm Studios with Otway doing the Really Free, uh, that album, I, I just acquired a pedal steel guitar, which I sort of learned to play. And I was, I, was, I was overlaying a track, and um, this guy came in and said, oh, do you record a reggae album? Uh, I said, yeah, <laughs> why not? <laughs> and, and he said, oh, I can pay you, not, not a lot. I said, that's all right, let's do it. And it was in Chalk Farm, and there's a guy called Keith Hudson. I'd oh. never heard of him. At the, I'd never heard of him at the time. And we did this whole album, um, as in 77, I think it was, and... It's fantastic, you know, just playing, sitting there playing with, you know, with the real guy, with the real deal. It just, to me, sounded brilliant. Yes. And that was it. Two days of that, and then I went off. And then about four years ago, I got a call from a guy in the States saying, I'm writing a book about Keith Hudson. And apparently, you know, I got all his information. He, he said, I noticed you're, you're credited on Rasta Communication, which is the album. It's one of the most influential reggae albums ever. And, uh, you know, and he was writing a book about Keith Hudson. Excellent. And he did an interview with me over the phone to sort of add to it. Yes. And, I, and that's that's the next I heard of him from that day in Chalk Farm. Right. Because did you meet the legendary Sly and Robbie on that particular session? Well, well they played on it. I, I didn't know. I had no idea, you know. Yes. No idea at the time. Because yeah. cause I remember seeing them a lot in the 80s when they used to do their taxi gang tours and thinking, they were awesome. And some of it was recorded in uh, in Jamaica as well, I think, and, and other studios around the world. It just, you know. Yes. But, you know, when I, it, you know, it was, um, I'd, that's great. But the lot I've recorded, I've done gigs with... Uh, quite a varied, it's all coming back to me now talking to you. You know, in the early days... I actually did a gig with Clement Freud. <laughs> Do you remember him? <laughs> yeah, I've got him. <laughs> and I tell you, one of the most impressive mouth organ players I've ever heard, Larry Adler. Oh. Live. I see him live. He's fantastic. And um, a guy called John Henson uh, is an operetta singer or opera singer. He did the Desert Song. That was it. Right. His big one. You know, that was years and years ago. And he was amazing, amazing voice. You know, there's us guys with our 50 amplifiers playing guitars, and he just walked on with nothing. It was louder. It's fantastic. Anyway, that's, that's all part of my mixed uh, musical heritage. You have got a very big mixed musical heritage. I guess you are, you're probably quite useful in that sort of, you're being a multi-instrumentalist, you can be called upon to... So yes, do do the business. Multi. <laughs> Multi, indeed. Well, I remember sort of, I've done an interview with was it Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. 
And he was talking. Oh, that was when he was doing the he was doing a Steel Eye Span album. He was producing it, and suddenly they wanted a saxophone player, and they. He said, actually, I know somebody, it's you know, David Bowie. It was like 73, 74, and he said, well, I'm sure he'll be all right just to come in and, and do it for a few seconds. And he did and didn't get paid or anything, but just kind of glued the saxophone on a song, I think, to know him is to love him, which was a Phil Spector song. And um, then he went again. So that was, yes, I guess, you know, you do get yeah. these calls when, you, when, when needed, if you live in the local area. Yeah. Yeah, things we do. The things you do in the world. So, because because one thing that most people try to avoid, or if they do it, they they regret it. But you say you you also started a record label in the eighties, which was an interesting time because it was a bit grim at times. So, what were you just kind of desperate to um, branch out and um, yes, release other people's work? Yeah, I, I, I find uh, the most interesting thing I find is is working on a project. Um, Bring it to bringing it to fruition. If it and then if it's successful, great. If it's not, it doesn't matter because I've worked on it and it's really enjoyable. And the record label is one of those things. You know, you know, I set it up with a friend of mine called uh, Chris France, and we had uh, distribution uh, sorted out, and, and we had a single. We got help. We got to get out of this place for the old animals track. Uh, did a version of that, and and we had a guy called. Um, Neil Ferris promoting it. It was a hot promoter just starting off then. And uh, he just did it on a percentage, which is brilliant. Um, and we got loads and loads of radio play. But we just ran out of money, you know, trying to keep the stock up to date, you know. And uh, But I, I wasn't disappointed in, in the fact that we just ran out of money because that's what it was. That's when it started to be a money game. Yes. You know, which is always a bit tricky, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Did um, I mean, when you did the album, there was in the mid eighties, organic bondage. Was that? Yeah. Was that quite a landmark record? Because obviously, um, you also did that experimental sleeve, didn't you? Which was it's which was quite an ambitious thing to do. Yeah, did did a couple of hundred wooden album sleeves, but but that's what got me into woodwork. So after that, I started doing sculpted woodwork. But the story was, I was doing a gig. You know, I've made up these real Heath Robinson type instrument effects boxes, you know, uh, acoustic, not not electronic. And I was doing a gig in near, in uh, Bristol, and uh, this old boy came up to me and said, "I do to wood what you do to music," which <laughs> you know, I thought that's a that's a good way of doing to it. And he he dragged me down his workshop and showed me all these amazing sculptures they were doing, and they built me the stage set, you know, you know, sort of musical instruments and things like that. Yes. Um, then I did the album, called it Organic Bondage, and and then I got hooked on woodwork, and I spent a few years in, you know, just making, making things, doing the you know furniture exhibitions and that, and which was strange in itself because. In a lot of places, like I go to Cheltenham Town Hall doing a woodwork show, and the last time I was in there was was with Otway playing to, you know, loads of screaming fans. <laughs> it's really <laughs> weird to be sat there, you know, in a yes. different environment. Yeah, but that's good, and um, I'm still doing the woodwork. In fact, that's what I'm working on at this very moment, my latest project. 
Yeah. And did you, I mean, because one thing that I've noticed with people in the world that is music, which is a bit tricky, you know, there are kind of real different sort of scenes that happen, you know. I mean, it's a bit simplistic, but, you know, you have the hippie scene, the glam, bit of prog, then, you know, punk, and then the indie world and, and dance stuff. I mean, how did you cope, you know, being a musician through all that period? Because obviously you, you had a moment with Really Free, but then... Um, you know, different scenes came and go. And also production sounds changed as well. You had, you know, the mainstream sound in the 80s with that Trevor Horn kind of sound, but then, you know, people quickly got tired of that. I just wondered how you were navigating it artistically. Well, just just be yourself, you know. Um, just just be a constant. As, as I've never tried to go with trends, you know, just, just, just do what you do. Um, I suppose that that's why I got into woodwork because the music thing was being really difficult to to work amongst because it was so it was so um, sort of finickety. You know, it started to get it started to get a bit like it is now with um, you know mobile phones and Facebook. It's like two two second quick look for two seconds done like that onto the net. You know. Yes. It, was, it was starting to it's starting to be like that with pop music, and it and it was taken over. It's a minority interest, pop music. Uh, I, I think it always is. It still is, but it get it makes the most noise. It's uh, interesting. Yes, absolutely. But then you you become you know during the naughty period, the noughties, um you, you know, you're sort of you you start to sort of. Um, I was going to say wax, but you, you, you your, your sort of profile gets, you know, rises again, doesn't it? Because you start sort of getting quite a few gigs, especially the Cambridge Folk Festival and touring again with John, you know, for Sleeping Dogs. Did that, did you, do you feel that you, you know, you became sort of back in fashion again during that period? No, I think, I think it's because I felt I had something, I had something creative, you know, my, because I'd, I'd moved on to a canal boat on, on the canal in Buckinghamshire and Hertfordshire, and I was walking up the towpath one day, and um, there's a guy called John Devine, who I'd never met before. He was sitting on the towpath playing some William pipes, you know, the Irish pipes. And uh, and I, I sort of, you know, gave him a nod, we carried on up to the pub, on the, and I, I was sitting in the pub garden having a pint, and suddenly the belly dancers came swanning in, with um, a young lady playing the purple cello, who's now my wife, <laughs> and uh, and I just put at uh, that moment in time, I put those two things together at cello, Irish pipes, and me. What? How can I pull this off? And um, and I did, and, and we did some quite creative stuff in the early days. And Otway was doing a gig at the London Palladium. His um, his hit, second hit. <laughs> um, and uh, and he, he asked me if I'd like to play, you know, come and put in an appearance. I said, yeah, all right. And so I managed to get get the Sleeping Dogs trio on there on, on the bill, just as our first gig, you know, just to try it out in front of an audience, sort of thing. It was, it was great fun. Yes, and, uh, and that's what started that. You know, I, I finally I finally had something which was you know, a bit different to go out and punt, punt around. Because I didn't want to just take a band out, you see, or anything ordinary. No. And uh, and at that point, I always said, oh, do you want to do, you know, there's a couple of gears, do you fancy doing? Yeah, do that. And, you know, it's all, all got going again because my enthusiasm for playing live music was, was back. Yes, because this was kind of, um, 
you did three albums with Sleeping Dogs as well, didn't you? Which was quite um, yeah. professional. And and also, like you said, you found love by a canal. That, I did, I did. Which is a good place to find it, as well as a belly dancer. Yeah. God, that's two for the price <laughs> of one. I am, that was so impressive. But then, a bit like... And a cello player. And a cello player. cello player. Yeah, well, you probably got that thrown in that was like buy one get one free but but then you know like bowie you know you you do switch styles a bit because after that you you perform another outfit don't you french connection well that came about because I, I spent a few few years in france with my wife mary and we're still gigging in england because uh, there's no music scene as such in france quite a strange place very nice so and um we found a French singer out there. I just fancied doing a, a sort of a mashup of French and English. So, so we found this young lady called Marie-Laure Uche, and she's a brilliant singer. You know, real. She she's a, a sort of Parisian girl in a classic, lovely voice. And and we got these few things together and came over to England and did a few gigs and recorded an album. And then, then we had to move back to the UK for uh, family reasons, and uh, we we found um, a French girl on the south coast who's, who's been living here for ten years to take over, and it carried on. And I did another album uh, called um, Avant Garde Monge Two, which we did a wooden sleeve. I did a wooden sleeve with with shutters on the nice. front, French shutters. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. God, you've done, you certainly have managed to sort of kind of navigate those waters. And how does it feel? I mean, do you, because quite a lot of people who've been in kind of successful bands with a certain lineup or personalities, you know, they, they have a bit of a strange relationship with the person or a few of the people within that lineup because, you know, like any kind of slightly difficult relationship, marriage, you know, how did you, you know, did you and John sort of manage to sort of, find a sort of a space or place that you could both sort of work together without um, just storming off? Well, uh, there was never really any storming going on. You know, it's just... We've known each other since we were kids, you know, since we were very young. I think I first met him when I was about 10, maybe younger than that. And so, so we've had this sort of association... And when you grow up like that, you know you can't you can't hate anybody, really. It's just you have differences of opinion, and you know if that's how it is. You just have to do something else. You know, there's no sort of animosity there. Yes, but obviously, you had you must have cleared the air from you know your sort of little break in the late seventies. Last time. You know, I got into the woodwork in about 83 and I, I hardly touched a, a musical instrument for 10 years. You know, I just used to play in, uh, in my local pub, you know, on the piano. Yes. And did, and, um, um, yeah. yeah, and I was going to say, do you still sort of have like musical projects that you're, you know, got in the pipeline to come out in the next yeah, couple of years? I'm working on one at the minute, which I'm actually building a stage. Um, it's sort of sculptured. It's all it's uh, and and I'm not going to incorporate instruments in it. 
Yes. So that's, that's the plan. Yes. I've been working on it for quite a while. And and I'm also about to launch a uh, a sort of an internet channel, you know, to, to promote all that as well. Yes. I spent a year on Twitch. But it's really difficult getting people off Facebook. It's along and the short of it. So, so I've decided to go back to my own website and start a channel from there promoting it because I don't see live gigs coming back. Yeah, you know, we've had most of our work cancelled for this year. Yes, I don't know. It's a tricky one. And are you working with Mary still? Yep. And that's still going. Yep. Yes. Yeah, we're all... Yeah, we're all... Um, yeah, we're, I've, I don't have a desire to be famous or anything. I, I never really have. I think that's another reason why... Why John and myself <clears throat> go different ways? Because I think as, as soon as there's a sign of mainstream acknowledgement, I sort of think now I don't really want that. Yes. You know, I, I, I find it hard to hero worship. I find it hard to be worshipped. Yes. You know, I, I don't think anybody deserves that. I think um, really? I think personality types are quite interesting because there is kind of people either lean towards the extrovert or introvert, and I think there's yeah. And I've over the years have really sort of become much more aware of that. People who just start talking without really <laughs> thinking, <are> obviously, <laughs> kind of uh, like oh, that's that's good, and then they backtrack, and then it all gets a bit embarrassing. Whereas the the introvert, I mean, this is a Sweden statement, isn't? It? But you know, can often think a little bit and then do the action or say the thing and then often it's a little bit better i mean you know i mean you need both and we all have a bit of those personality types within us but i do think that um yes i suppose the extrovert is the person who still needs to be on the red carpet whereas the introvert could happily go actually i'm just going to go and do the washing up and make a cup of tea and then yeah. probably go home and read a book so there you go so did you watch, carry on life yes did you watch the rock and roll greatest failure otway the moon no. No, I haven't. He, he's never paid me for my part, my contributions. <laughs> and he keep he keeps setting gigs up with a, with the the film and the Otway and Barrett gig afterwards. You know, we've got another one to do next year, I think. Right. But I, I still have, I still haven't watched it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I guess it's probably best then, not to not to break that habit. I mean, do you? Um, I mean, what would you say to a an eighteen year old self starting out, you know, in the creative world that is music? Or if you could have said something to yourself when you were starting, what would that be? Well, it's all different now. I mean, you, you know, people, people of my generation, we just see it all as uh, you, you just can't see. I mean, the, the trouble is, it's all internet now, and well, that's what people think. Um, so it's actually difficult to break on the internet only, I believe, um, because you've still got to promote yourself. So somewhere along the line, there's a lot of money being spent to promote something which is unknown yes. on the internet. Because I'm, I'm, I've got a fan base, and it's really difficult to get people off of Facebook. You know. Yes. And uh, and I'm getting really fed up with that media because you know. You just don't need it in your life. <laughs> I know it's a tricky one, actually. No, I just yeah. wondered if there was anything you would would have just, you know, say if you could have said something to yourself back then when you were starting. I just wondered what that that advice would be. I think I just do the same thing, and, and I still think it's important. Now you have to get out there to people. 
you have to go and play to people. Yeah. You know, as an entertainer, musician, or whatever you say, you know, you've got to get out there. You can sit in front of a camera on on um, Facebook, Instagram, whatever. And then as soon as you say to someone, oh, that, I'll do this down, down the road, it'll cost you a fiver to come and see me. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I could see you for nothing. I know. Mean, you can't. It's a true thing. And that's a difficult one. Yeah. And, it, and it's because you now I've got a, I've got, you know, the website uh, channel I'm setting up, it, it, you know, it's uh, it's going to cost a pound a month to watch it, you know, terrible. I know. Outrageous prices. Yes, I'm still here. Can oh, you hear? Oh, you, you've gone again. Oh, right. No, no, I'm still here. I can just about hear you in the background. Oh. You've got a bed. It's, it's slightly, it was a bit clunky there. Really? Can you hear me now? Hello? No. Something I've got. I can just hear you faintly in the background. Yeah, something's kind of... Oh, you're back. I'm back. I'm back. Are you back? Yeah. Yeah, you're back. Yes, I think some, some, something went slight. Yeah, so yes, trying to pay, trying to get someone to pay £1 a month is probably... Um, you think it's going to be simple, don't you? <laughs> well, <laughs> we can pay £10 a year, isn't this incentive? I know. Or you can support me as a... As a uh, you know, you, you can support my stage project for fifteen pound a month. Well, I think of that one, yeah. which, which is a great way of supporting an artist if, if you anybody feels like doing that. Have you ever done any crowdfunding or anything? Not yeah, you know, for these kind of projects. I've had a Patreon account for over a year, um, which it worked initially, but again, you have to spend a lot of time and a bit of money promoting the fact that you're on there. And, and I think, well, what you're doing is actually spending time and money from promoting Patreon. You know, and it's a that's a, I feel the same way about YouTube. You know, it's really difficult to make money on YouTube. You know, it's not making money, just a living. Yes. And and you keep advertising YouTube to, to get people to go on it. So I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to advertise my website more and try and get people on that, you know. Yes. And that was me in conversation with Wild Willie Barrett talking about his life in music and other things besides. If you, um, yes, a bit of admin. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can find it on at C86show. I'm David Eastor. Um, and also all these uh, interviews and shows have been uh, archived, so you can find those on iTunes, Spotify, and also Podbean. There you go. There's a lot of interviews. There's a lot of chat. I don't blame you if you don't want to listen to them, but I've enjoyed them. So what can I say? Have a great week. Stay safe. Speak soon.